Welcome listeners to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler. Uh, my guest on today's podcast is my friend Jerry Broadbent. Welcome to the podcast, podcast Jerry. Thanks for having me. Um, Jerry is joining me from her home in Gilbert, Arizona, and she's going to share the story of losing her husband, Dan, at age 23. He died on December 4th, 2021. So that's about 14 months ago from when we're recording, leaving um, Jerry, G-E-R-I is the way I'm spelling your name. That's correct. Um, A widow with four kids. You've got three girls and then a a boy. And... um, Jerry reached out to me, and I just thought it would be helpful to have on the podcast. This is brave of her. Uh, I think it honors Dan, who's gone, and Dan went early at 43. And I assume you're in your 40s, Jerry? Yes, I am. I'm actually just turned 43 myself. So you're a young family, and now you're raising these kids alone that are probably around 11 to 1 or 14 to 4, I think. Maybe they Uh, are 12 to to 6. 18 to 6. Okay, age 18 to 6 or the age of your kids? Yes. Let's get that right. <laughs> but our hope is this will be helpful um, if you've lost your spouse. Jerry's been on this road for a while. Uh, maybe some of the things she shares with you will help you if you have are wanting to better support a family you love that has lost somebody early and not quite sure the right things to say or not say. Um, our hope is this will help you and and then I think of Dan, your husband up in heaven. I hope this keeps his memory alive and somehow he's aware that you're talking about him, Jerry, um, and want to keep his memory alive and the good man he is. And the, I like to use um, not past tense to refer to somebody. I like to use is instead of was listeners because I think nothing's changed that way. Um, he's just in a different sphere. So anyway, is that okay for an introduction, Jerry? Yes. No, I, I love that. I do the same. So I appreciate that. Definitely. So, um, Jerry has a wonderful outline and um, I'm just going to let her share your her story. So I'll turn it over to you, Jerry. All right. Thanks. Well, just to preface this, when I reached out to you, I just assumed you had lots of widow friends that you would have one of them on. I didn't know you would ask me, but I appreciate the opportunity to share my story. So I'm grateful to be here. And I, I hope that I I do my husband justice and all, all that he went through. Um, if I could just start by going back to my childhood, because um, I feel like it really prepared me for later on in life. Um, so I'm going to briefly go over that. I'm the oldest of three kids. I had two younger brothers and my youngest brother, a few months after he was born, he was diagnosed with a chronic illness called cystic fibrosis, which affected his respiratory and digestive system. Um, it was a really unknown disease at the time. My parents had never heard of it. Um, and so there was a lot of uncertainty and a lot of unknown that came along with that. Um, and so at a really young age and throughout my brother's life, we had a lot of uncertainty in our life. And I had to learn to get comfortable with the unknown and uncertainty. And that really served me well later on in life when we would deal with my husband um, and all of his things. Um, I also, I never heard my parents say, why us? Why Andrew? Why did this happen? Um, They didn't teach us the prosperity gospel. It wasn't good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. It was, we both have this genetic 
um, mutation, this this gene, and Andrew has CF because of that. It was nothing more than that. And I really appreciate that perspective that they always brought to us. Um, the last thing is I saw my parents advocate for my brother in hospital rooms and doctor's offices. They stood up to anybody, no matter who it was, a um, specialist, a doctor, a nurse, if they felt like my brother wasn't getting the best care, they would they would say something. And neither one of them had any medical background. Um, they just knew that they needed to stand up for my brother and make sure he got the best care. Um, one more thing I want to mention about growing up and something my parents did really well is um, my parents were like really a partnership and they saw each other as equals. They both worked outside the home. Um, my dad owned his own business as an appraiser and my mom ran the catering business with my dad. And then she taught swimming lessons in the summer. And she also worked for the park and rec department um, in our city. And so I learned at a young age to be independent and to hustle because that was my parents were really good at that. And um, I always wanted to be a working mom. It was just, I love that my mom did it and I wanted to do it too. And so growing up, especially in like young women's um, back then, it was kind of always focused on being a mom, which is great. But I never really felt like I fit that typical housewife mold because I didn't just want to be a mom. I wanted to be some I wanted to do more. I also wanted to work. And I think both are great. But back in the day, we didn't really talk so much about the other one. And so I never really felt like I fit that typical mold. Um, my brother, Andrew, ended up he passed away at 19 from complications from a double lung transplant. And at the time I was pregnant with our, with our second child. Um, I'm going to fast forward now eight years. And my husband, Dan was uh, 38 at the time I was 36 and we had an 11 year old, a seven year old, a one year old. And I was pregnant with our fourth and final child. Um, when we found out that he had a large tumor that, that sat right above his heart and that forked up to the right side of his neck and around a major artery. The only thing we knew at the time that it was inoperable and that it was most likely cancer, but it took three months of a lot of scans, doctor's visits, biopsies, and um, blood tests to finally figure out what kind of cancer it was. That was a really, really hard time lots of uncertainties and unknowns. And I had to kind of sit back into what I had learned as a child of getting comfortable with the uncomfortable. And um, it was only Dan and I and his dad that knew. We we weren't telling anybody at the time. Um, we ended up finding out that he had a rare cancer that was called neuroendocrine cancer. And that was one of the reasons why it took so long to diagnose it. Um, Dan didn't want to be known as the cancer guy. And he didn't want his circumstances to define him. And so for a long time, we didn't share. Um, he also was an attorney and had his own law practice, was a sole practitioner. And so a lot of people, when you hear cancer, you think you're not capable of doing anything. I mean, you've got to just focus on your treatment and you're down and out. And Dan knew that his law practice would really suffer if people knew he had cancer. And so we decided together to silence ourselves. So for six months, we didn't tell anybody but his dad anything. Um, finally, after six months, I convinced Dan it was time to tell our kids, especially our older two. 
and we told our extended family. And then a few months after that, we told some really close friends. We knew we were going to need some support and help. And so we decided to, to share a little bit, but we were very strategic in everything we shared. Dan would make sure that what he shared was things that would still make people, not make people believe he could still work, but not put him in a light where he wasn't capable of doing things. Um, he was able to work the whole entire time of his journey, the whole five, six years up until the last month of his life. And that just goes to show what an amazing man Dan was. He was a fighter and his number one goal in life, besides being a dad and a husband was being a provider. It brought him so much joy and it really did keep him going to be able to work that whole time. Um, shortly after Dan was diagnosed, we made a trip to the temple and I specifically remember sitting in the celestial room and I had this really strong impression from the spirit that told me everything's going to be okay. And Dan and I were talking about it and he, he felt something very similar. And he said, you know, what, what do you think that means? And I said, you're going to beat this, that you are going to be that 30% and we're going to beat this and, and we can do this. Um, I also had a strong impression at the time, which I didn't tell Dan because we weren't sharing with people that somehow this story would need to be shared some way, some, someday, whether it was then or later, I wasn't really sure. So at that time I started journaling, like really meticulously journaling our story. Um, and so I, that was, that was really important for, for now. Um, another thing I did is one night I was looking on Dan's nightstand and he had this grateful journal and I was like, what, you know, what's this? And he goes, Oh, it's a grateful journal. I ordered, I'm not going to use it. You can have it. So I took it. And from that day on every single day without fail, I would write in this grateful journal at the end of the day, when I got in bed, I had this routine and I would sit down and I would think of all the things that day I could be grateful for. And those days that brought me to my knees that the days I felt like I couldn't go on any farther, that I was at my limit, were the days that I was able to write down the most things to be grateful for. And I started seeing this pattern because I started looking for those tender mercies that my, that my Savior was giving me. And that was really special and really helped in our journey. Um, when you're going through something really hard, like cancer or any type of chronic illness, mental, physical, um, it could be financial, whatever it might be, divorce, you search for people going through something similar or something hard themselves. You need that. You need to know you're not the only one. And I really did search for that. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Kate Bowler. Um, she is an amazing author. I would highly recommend the book, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. So she was diagnosed with a chronic illness, uh, chronic cancer herself, and she writes this book about it. And it is beautiful. And if you know anyone going through cancer, or let's be honest, most of us know somebody who's going to be affected by cancer. This book is so helpful on knowing what they're going through. Um, Dan had gotten it and I saw it on his nightstand and I asked him if I could read it. And every night as I would read it, I would say, oh my gosh, do you feel this way? And I would read a part of the book and he's like, yeah, I told you that. And I'm like, 
but not like this. Like you didn't say it like this. Her words just spoke to me and I was able to see Dan in a whole different way. And, um, it really helped me help him in this journey. Um, she also talks about the fellowship of the afflicted and that's not in this book, but in some of her other things. And it is a beautiful way of just kind of describing that fellowship we need in our afflictions that we, that we find others that are also afflicted. And we have like this, this well fellowship, like, like the circle that we gravitate to. And it's a beautiful way of putting it, um, because you need to know you're not alone. Another thing I had to be really intentional about was that my thoughts controlled my emotions. Um, one side effect of Vance cancer was anxiety. He had already had a little bit of anxiety, but this magnified it times 10. So you can imagine every time he went in for a doctor's visit or anything, his blood pressure would skyrocket because he was so anxious. And when I would react that same way, or when I would be emotional or worried, it would affect him even more because it made him think, well, Jerry doesn't think I'm going to make it or Jerry thinks something's wrong. So I had to be so intentional about the way I thought would come out in my emotions. And so that everything is going to be okay became so powerful because that's what I would tell myself. Everything's going to be fine. And I think some people might think that's naive way to thinking, but I love what the Dalai Lama says. And he says, you can worry once or you can worry twice. So if you think positively and let's say that thing, the bad thing that you're hoping doesn't happen happens, well, you're just now having to worry about it once. But if you think worst case scenario, you're worrying about it then. And then if it happens, you're worrying about it twice. But let's say it doesn't happen. Well, you just worried for nothing. So I was really intentional about focusing on the positive, the best case scenario. And that really helped Dan. Um, like I said, he, he dealt with anxiety, but along with that anxiety, a lot of fear and even a little depression and anger. And I think anybody going through a chronic illness um, is probably familiar with that and, and would agree. Um, he, after a, a long day at work, he didn't feel good and he was exhausted. He would go back in our room. It was, it was dark back there and he would turn on some music and he would just sit in, in the darkness, in the quiet. And a lot of times he would ask me to come back with him and just sit with him. He didn't want me to talk. He just wanted me to sit by him. And so I would do it a lot of times. Now, remember, I also had four kids. I was also having to try to take care of. So it was really difficult to juggle, but I knew that I needed to take a little time for that. But I also know, knew that I couldn't sit with the darkness with him for very long. That fear, that depression, that anxiety, I couldn't sit there because I had to be the light for the both of us and for our kids. And so I knew there was only a certain amount of time I could give before I started feeling sucked into that. But I felt like it was important to acknowledge it and give him that space. Fear and anxiety served Dan and helped him survive. It, it, it didn't work that way for me. Uh, thinking positively is what helped me. Um, for a long time, I don't know how long, several months, I would be like, just choose to be happy. Just choose to be happy. Like, find joy in this journey and all these things. And after reading Kate Bowler's book and also like doing some thought work, I, I really changed that. And I realized that's not helping him. What's What helps him is to give him space and permission to feel all the feels he needed to. 
Whether if it was a whole day laying in bed, which was very, very rare, I wouldn't get upset about it. I would just let him. And it really helped him work through these emotions. And it was really important. So I would suggest if you're in this situation and someone's going through this or you yourself's going through it, you need to feel it. You, you can't suppress it. You need to feel these feelings. And if you're watching someone go through it, I know it's hard. Believe me, it's so hard to watch, but they need that space to work through it. And sometimes it serves them in order to survive. I could take a long time to go through our whole journey, but we don't have that time. So I'm going to give one part um, that really affected me in a positive way. Um, in December of 2020, so he was diagnosed in, in 2016. So fast forward about four years to December of 2020, um, Dan's airways were becoming really restricted. And he, he I had to take him into the emergency room because he wasn't able to breathe. And we all know 2020 also was COVID. And so I had to drop him off at the door and let him go in by himself. I couldn't go in. That was really hard. I remember praying in the um, parking lot, just crying and praying, please let me see him again. Because I really didn't even say goodbye. It was so fast and he was struggling to breathe and it was so difficult. And so he was in for several days and then we were introduced to an amazing interventional pulmonologist named Dr. Saeed. And he was going to, he was one of two, he's one of two people in the U.S. who, who does this work, um, this specialized work. So he was going to go in and try to open up Dan's airway. Now, the reason why his airway was so restrictive was the cancer was invading his airway. Um, and so it was his airway is supposed to be 13 millimeters. Well, it was three and seven. So imagine trying to breathe with that little amount of air going through. So I had promised Dan, he was going in for this procedure. We'd never experienced something like it. I promised him I would, I would sit in the parking lot. I couldn't be in there. The only time they'd let you in the hospital was if the person was dying to say goodbye. So it brought comfort to Dan to know I was close enough where I could do that, but also just to know I was as close as I could be. And so I sat in the parking lot for hours because um, we, you know, they pushed back those and it was a good 45 minutes from our house. So I just took the day to sit in the parking lot. Dr. Saeed found out. And I know this man is busy. Um, he's a, he's specialized in his field. He found out, he called me and he said, Hey, are you in the parking lot? And I said, yeah. And he said, Hey, would you mind, would you like to come up to my office and I can walk you through this procedure? And so I went up to his office and he took 30 minutes to show me scans, to draw me pictures, to walk through every scenario he thought he might encounter in this surgery. And it brought so much peace and comfort to me. And then I could in turn give that to Dan. He also, every time he talked about his abilities, it was always giving the credit to God. And he would always say, God willing, from the power that be, all these things, he would always bring it back to God. And I knew we were of different faiths. I didn't know what, exactly what faith he was, but I knew we had different faiths. But I remember before he left, he first asked me if there was anything he wanted me to tell Dan that he could relate to Dan to me. And then he said, I'm going to be praying for God's help before I go into this surgery. I would love it if you did the same. And just what power it felt to combine our faiths for one cause. 
we believed in the same God. It didn't matter what, what religion we were, but our, the power of our faith was confined to help Dan. And that was a true example of ministering to me, Dr. Saeed. And, and he would do this surgery, this bronchoscopy for Dan eight times in Dan's life and kept him alive a good year and a half past what he should have been. And we were so blessed to have met him. Um, so like I said, the, the cancer started invading Dan's airway. And so the treatment would kill the, would kill the cancer and Dr. Said would go in and, and laser the cancer. But the problem is when you kill the cancer, you're also taking away airway. And the problem with the airway is you only get one. There's, there's no getting a new airway. So his airway was becoming paper thin and we knew his time was short. And so, um, in, in November of 2021, at the very beginning of November, he um, was having the same breathing issue, um, went in. We were not able to get to Dr. Saeed because his airway was so compromised and we had to go to a different hospital and they ended up putting in a trach. And from that day forward, I became a 24-7 home, home health care uh, a home nurse to Dan, whatever you might want to call it. Um, that was my job taking care of him. Um, that's hard. Anyone who is a caregiver for somebody that they love one, it's the greatest act of service you can do for someone, but it is extremely difficult. Not only is it emotional strain, but it's physically too. You're not getting sleep and you're also responsible for this person. And I know it's a lot. So anyone who's going through that, I see you. I know how hard that is. Like, hold on. You can do it, but you also need to give yourself some time and space. Like, please give yourself grace and time and space to, even if it's 10 minute walk, like I remember how difficult that time was, but it also was time I was able to spend with him. Um, the end of, in the end of November, the very end of November, um, we went into the hospital again. Um, now at this time, Dan couldn't eat. He couldn't drink, couldn't speak, couldn't really walk. Everything basically besides seeing and sitting was, was taken from Dan. He couldn't do much. His, his quality of life was pretty terrible. And so the end of November, we went in and we're again at this hospital that does not have specialized doctors. And they give us this option to do another bronchoscopy where they go in and try to open up the airway without his skilled doctor that knows what they're doing. Um, or we could, cause he was on a ventilator time or we would have to, um, go into a hospice center. And so this was the first time that I knew I could not promise Dan that I couldn't get him out of the hospital. That's what he, I had to promise him every time before this. This was the first time where I really knew in my gut, if you go in for that bronchoscopy, I can't promise you you're coming home or you're, or we're going to see you. I just don't trust this doctor. Um, and so it was at that time we made the difficult decision to, he signed a DNR, which is a do not resuscitate. And we decided to go into a, a hospice facility. He, for the first time, talked about his funeral, planned his funeral and planned out the last day of his life. That's a lot. Wow. He could barely say cancer up until this point. So imagine having to sit with the person you love most in life and planning at a funeral and your last day. It was really hard and beautiful all at the same time, which I can't explain how that happens, but it does. So he planned out this beautiful day with our kids, our extended family, his parents and my parents and nieces and nephews and 
we watched a movie and we had his favorite food, even though he couldn't even eat it, but he wanted it there, his favorite drinks, all of it. And this amazing EMT stayed in the hospice center because hospice will not let you stay on a ventilator, but they allowed us this day of dancing on the ventilator so that he could be coherent and able to say goodbye. So he was able to say goodbye to every single member of our family who was there and take time with each one. And as we finished, um, we said goodbye to everyone, but my two oldest Dan's parents and his siblings, and we pulled him off the ventilator. And this is the moment where it's supposed to be like the movies where you just kind of drift off to the next life and minutes turn to hours and hours turn to days. And I remember one day I had to get out of the hospice facility. My, my father-in-law was really good. Like you need to get out of here. Like, cause I, I didn't leave. And so I went on a run and that's a way I can clear my head. And on this run, I am yelling at God in my head. I am so angry at him. I'm angry, not just because Dan's dying. I knew this was coming and I, I know he can't sustain where he's at right now. I'm angry because after all of all that Dan has suffered with, he couldn't just give us this one thing of Dan dying in this beautiful way that we had planned, just like the movies. Like I said, like where he just kind of drifts off to the next life. And I get home, I not home, I get to hospice for my run and the hospice nurse sees me and she's like, hey, is everything okay? And I said, no, oh, I, I thought this would be like the movies. Like, I just thought it would be different and he's still here and he's suffering and I'm struggling. And she said, you know, one, he's not in pain. He's not suffering. And two, maybe look at this as extra time with him that your family can spend with him. And so from that day forward, I looked at each day that I woke up, not why is he still, why is this happening to this is another day we get to see him and spend time with him. And um, that hospice room became sacred ground. And it was as close to heaven as I've ever felt. And there's a lot of amazing experiences that happened in there. But um, the only thing I want to say is that it was beautifully difficult and something I'll never forget. Uh, Dan ended up passing away uh, December 4th of 2021. Um, and yeah, that was really hard, really hard. Um, even though I knew he couldn't sustain what, where he was at, it was a really, really difficult time for all of us. Um, I'm going to fast forward a little bit or kind of move on to talking a little bit about what people can do for somebody going through something like this. Um, so, and I'm going to focus on leadership for a minute, if that's okay. So I understand that our situation, not sharing and keeping everything kind of quiet from pretty much everyone did not make it easy for anyone to navigate. It, it probably made it really difficult for those, especially in leadership, because we, we kept things very tight lipped. And so I'm sure they didn't know what to do with us most times. Um, but one thing I'd like to say is um, in those really difficult, intimate times of people's lives, um, some people are going to want you there and some people aren't. It just depends on the person. Everyone's different. Um, and I would, I would just say, don't be hurt if families decide that this isn't a time to have you there. Um, don't be hurt if families decide that they are going to have close family and friends take care of 
of things like funerals and that kind of thing. I know we have this culture of, well, this leadership position does this and this leadership position does this. And it's kind of become this cultural thing. Um, but everyone's different. Um, for me, we had to earn, people had to earn relationships with us through trust. And those who are closest to us were those we could trust and who really knew Dan. And so when I'm in the hospice center and I'm trying to plan out funerals and all these things, I'm going to those who know me the best and Dan the best for help. And so I think it's okay for leadership to take a more supportive role sometimes and to sit back and just let someone take the lead instead of them. It doesn't mean you're not doing your calling. It just means that you just need to be the supportive one and say, you know, whatever we can do, let us know we're here. And that's enough. Some people, like I said, will want you to do all of it. And some people won't. And it's okay either way, but don't take it personally. It's not personal. Um, you also, another thing is you don't need to know what someone's going through to pray for them. I heard that one time. Well, how are we supposed to know to pray for them if we don't even know what's going on in their life? You don't need to know. If you think we're struggling, pray for us. That's it. That's all you need to know. If you have a feeling to pray for us, do it. Um, another thing that wasn't super helpful, and I've heard this on your podcast before, but um, eternal life, talking about eternal life. No, I'm not saying I don't trust God and have faith that there, that there is a life after this. I'm not saying that at all. Um, but saying that he's in a better place or saying, will you have the next life with him? It is not helpful. It was not helpful to me. Maybe it's helpful to some people, but I am 40. I still have a good second half of my life that I was supposed to spend with the person I love most. And he's not here. And eternal life is not going to make that easier for me. I mean, does it bring me a little comfort to know I'll see him again? Of course. But it doesn't make what I'm doing now easier. Um, and same with my kids. They have their whole life to live without their dad. It really stinks. And just telling them, well, he's in a better place is not helpful. It's really not helpful. And it's really hard when it's difficult, when you're straddling the line between life and death to really picture eternal life until you've come so close to the veil where you're seeing someone cross over to the other side. You don't realize how abstract and difficult eternal life is. We have no idea exactly what it's like, what it's, what it's going to be like. And I think that sometimes that unknown can be not super comforting at, at the time that I'm in right now, at least for me. And, and to be honest, nothing you say to me is going to make my situation better or to make the pain go away. It's going to be there. So I think when people want to say something to someone, they, if we sometimes want to like make it better, like, of course I want to make your pain better. And I think the best thing to say is, well, one, don't not say anything at all. It's better to say the, it's something not right than nothing at all. But I love you and I'm here for you is a great way, place to start. If you don't know what to say, I love you and just give them a hug. Um, um, a little bit about widow, widows and singles in the ward. Um, I'm going to talk about men for just one second and then I'm going to move on to women. I, I think sometimes men, widows and men singles um, who have families, for some reason, they're kind of discarded in a way like, oh, they've got it. They're a man. They got it. They can handle it. Um, and so let's be honest. They probably need more help than the woman does because they don't know what to do at home. Most of the time they need help with kids. And so we shouldn't overlook men, either wid widowers 
or single men who have families. Like we need to make sure we reach out to them and see them. Um, since I'm a woman, I only know the woman's perspective. So I'm going to kind of cater more to that. Um, but one thing I want to, I want to tell a funny story about a good friend of mine. She, um, her husband went through something really difficult and, um, I was standing by her at church and someone came up to her and of course they, they were very well-intentioned and they looked at her and it's this head tilt. And then this, how you doing kind of voice. And she looked at him and she goes, wipe that look off your face. And she raised her hands in the air and she goes, I'm living the dream. And I just think that's such a, a funny way to put it. Like sometimes we, we um, think of pity the same way we think it's helping like, or concern, but pity just makes us feel weak, like a hurt animal. And when you do the head tilt, tilt and that change in your voice, it makes us feel like you're pitying us and it, it's not super helpful. Um, I, after Dan passed and, and I don't want to say this is not gospel at all. I'm going to, I'm going to call this culturally in our, in our church. Um, I felt like I was seen as incapable without a man and that I didn't fit the typical mold anymore. I didn't have a husband. It wasn't a husband, wife with kids. It was me and my kids. And I no longer felt fit the mold. People just kind of assume that you're not ready for a calling. They assumed I wasn't when I was, when, when Dan was struggling with cancer, I remember so many times when they'd give me a calling, they're like, we're going to give you something really easy. Don't worry. And it, it made me feel like I wasn't capable. Now, some people that may make them feel like, oh, good, you get it. But for me, it made it feel like you don't think I'm capable of more. And same with after Dan died. And so um, after Dan passed, um, one of the one of the leadership in our ward met with me and he's like, what can we do for you? And I said, for starters, you can start, stop treating me like a wounded bird, but you're treating me like a wounded bird. Ask me if you think there's a calling I need, like ask me, um, instead of seeing what we lack, see what we have to offer, see our strengths. Um, because we do, we've been through a lot and we know hard and there's going to be people who don't want callings and, and that's okay, but there's going to be people who need it and want it. Um, and when you ask us what we need and you say, Hey, I'm going to circle back with you. You need to do it. Put it in your calendar. I've had that numerous times. Never have I been circled back on. So please make sure you do that. Ask if we need support. Um, I'm going to give you a few examples of the difference between pity and helping. Uh, or ministering and pity. Um, one man in particular in my ward, after Dan passed, he gave me the sheet of all these things he could do um, if I needed it. And so I was like, oh, that's great. You know, I put it off to the side. Remember, I'm, I was taught to be very independent as a kid. So I'm like, oh, I got this. And so every month he would text me and be like, okay, what, what do you need? What can I help you with? And I'd be like, oh, I got it. I'm good. And he'd be like, okay, I'm coming to get your gar car and I'm going to vacuum it out. I'm like, Okay. So for a few months, he would come get my car and vacuum it out. And then I realized he's going to do that regardless if I have something for him or not. So I was like, started thinking about what do I need help with? And so I started asking, okay, I have these shelves staying up. I can't do it by myself. Can you help me with that? I have these rocks in my backyard. Can you help me shovel them? Whatever. And, and it was really not, I knew he didn't pity me. I knew he just wanted to be like Dan's hands. And that was so amazing. 
um, another guy in our ward, um, he said that during the primary program, he looked at my son and he had this strong impression to ask if he could help him in baseball. Um, he's really knowledgeable about, about baseball. And little did he know that one, baseball is Dan's favorite sport, but two, my son had been asking about playing baseball recently. And so he, um, I talked with him and every week he meets with my son. He has my son over and he practices the fundamentals of baseball with him. And it is so great. And I, I never felt like he did it out of pity, but only out of love for my son and Dan. Um, another thing is when and I'm going to talk in particular, when somebody passes that in your family, I think a lot of people think like, let's talk about my husband passing away. They think you want to be left alone. Like, Oh, let's not bug him. For me, that was the farthest thing from the, from what I really wanted. I already felt alone. I just lost my husband. I didn't want to be sitting at my house alone because then it just reminded me, oh yeah, somebody's missing in my family. And so I have some amazing friends who just showed up that morning after Dan passed and they just sat with us and they talked with us and they laughed with us. We were met, We talked about Dan and funny stories and they just sat with us. And it was such an amazing example of ministering and loving. Um, we had people filling our pantry, helping watch my kids. I can't even possibly mention everyone who ministered to us during this time. And there were so many, and I'm so grateful for all of them. So what can you do? What is helpful? One thing our culture is really good at is I like to call it fooding. Um, so after Dan died, we had so much food, like, uh, at our doorstep meals brought in. I'm not saying don't do it. It was extremely helpful. Food is a great idea. But sometimes we just do the food and we miss the other part. Sometimes we need someone just to sit with us in the hard, in the mud of grief in difficult times um, where you don't try to fix it. You just sit. Now, I'm not saying that's for everyone. You need a relationship with the person first. So hold back. If you don't have a relationship with a person, don't just run over their house and try to sit with them because I did have that too. So make sure if you have a relationship with them, go sit with them in it because they need it. And, and you don't need to try to fix it because you can't fix it. Um, another thing is um, for my teenagers, they needed to not be asked to share. I know that people wanted them to be this big faith builder, to, to build others' faith through this experience. They weren't ready. They needed to be able to share on their own time. So don't push people to share. Let them have the space to do it when they want. And they will when they're ready. Um, just give support and love. Text them if that's all you can do. If you don't have a, a real relationship with them, maybe just text and say thinking about you um, because that's how teenagers communicate. Um, so th those are just some simple ways to, that you can reach out and help someone. All right, let's get into a little difficult part of church after Dan died. Um, church was, I shouldn't say church, the culture was already complicated for me. I never really felt seen. I always felt kind of marginalized. And I don't know if it was just because I never really felt like I fit that typical Mormon housewife mold. Um, I just, I never really felt seen. Um, and, and how do we receive value in our church? If we think about it, I think we all can agree. Our culture gives us value through our callings. Because if you listen to people, when they talk about difficult things happen. They'll, they'll say, oh, we were really faithful. You know, my husband was state president, elders corn president, our bishop, and I had all these leadership callings. Well, what happens 
when the way we're living and the person we think are, we are like that we are doesn't match our callings. Like what happens when you don't have any leadership callings and you're doing all the, all the things and are faithful. It doesn't match what our culture believes. And so we feel like we don't belong. And that's where kind of the wounded bird came in. Like I was treated like a wounded bird. Like I wasn't capable of more. And I knew I had had hard things. I was capable of a lot more. And I needed them to know that. And I finally said, I said, ask me if there's a calling. Don't say, well, I don't think she's ready. Ask me because I will tell you if I'm not ready. And people will say, you know what? I need to not have a calling for three to six months. And after those three to six months, put it in your phone and contact them and say, hey, just want to know. Are you ready or not? We'll, we'll give you as much time as you want, but I just want you to know we see you and, and we would love to have you if you're available or if you can do something. Um, I had to separate how those in our culture saw me from how God saw me. Um, and that took a lot. And, and I feel like I've gotten pretty good at it, but I still struggle a little bit um, because I knew how God saw me was the most important thing because he made me more over and over again throughout our experience. I can tell you so many times that phrase of you're not given more than you can handle. Not true. In my case, at least I was given so much more than I can handle over and over again. And I was able to see glimpses of what God saw in me by him making me more than I was, whether it was advocating for Dan with a voice I never had before, or whether it was staying calm during really, really traumatic experiences. He made me more over and over again. And I like to ask this question, are we the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the church of the scene? And what I mean by that is, Christ came and saw the unseen. And I don't know if you're familiar with the movie, The Chosen. If any of you haven't seen The Chosen, my friend bugged me to see it like for months. I finally watched it. And in the first episode, you're going to see this at the very end. You're going to see the most, one of my favorite parts. Um, So you have Mary Magdalene who, you know, has those seven devils or whatever they are, spirits inside of her. She's a hot mess. Like she is really struggling. She's not seen. And if she is seen, people just think she's crazy. And as the moment... And I know this isn't hundred percent accurate. I'll, I'll put that out there. Um, they're in like an alleyway or something. And, and Christ sees Mary and he says to her, and I know this isn't in the actual scriptures, but I'm going to read it anyway, because it was beautiful. It's in Isaiah 43, one, he says, fear not for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name and you are mine. And immediately when he called her name, Mary, her whole set, she just changed. She, it was like, she saw herself through Christ's eyes and she became more than she was. Not only did he, of course, dismiss the seven spirits from her body, but she became the person that Christ saw in her. She became seen. And I can't tell you, we all want to be seen. So when we are seen through somebody else's eyes, we become more than we were in that moment. Um, and, and the disciples weren't perfect men either. He, he picked men that weren't seen that, that most people wouldn't think would be his disciples. Um, Christ was outside the box and so were those who chose to follow him. So I wonder when did we become the culture of those who only see a certain type? Um, there's a phrase, I don't know if you've heard of it. We call it STP over here in Gilbert and maybe other places call it STP. It's called same 10 people. (laughs) So same 10 people are like cycled through in leadership positions. And they just go from like 
one presidency to another and to another. And, and it's just kind of like this revolving circle. And so um, we only see a certain mold a lot of times. We just see this certain mold as those who are capable. And I think a lot of times it's, well, they've done it before, so we know they're going to do it again. And it's hard to maybe see somebody who hasn't done before and trust they can do it too. Even if you're worried they're going to do it the way you want them to. And maybe that's the problem is a lot of times we're like, well, I want them to do it this way. I'm worried they're not. Um, so I just think we need to be brave enough to see how Christ saw, to actually see those who are marginalized and unseen and give people the opportunity. Uh, there's that phrase, the top to the bottom or bottom to the top that is sometimes mentioned. And I think it comes from that scripture of the first shall be last and last shall be first. I, I think for some reason we've kind of made that into that scripture. Um, but I think what Christ really meant was there is no first and there is no last. There's no top. There's no bottom. We are all equal in his eyes. Um, after Dan died, um, we, we've been together for over 20 years. And when you've been together with someone that long, um, you kind of start meshing into each other. You become one. Um, and it's hard to know what part is you or what part is them or what you thought or what they thought. It just kind of meshes together. And so after Dan died, I was broken into a million pieces. Um, and I had to start picking up the pieces of, of myself. I had to start deciding what pieces I wanted to keep and what pieces I wanted to discard. And then as people came into my life, those who had been there and new people, I started to gravitate and grab pieces of them that I really liked and, and put those on for size. And I was able to put myself back together and fill these cracks, not only from my savior and my heavenly parents, but from those around me. And they became crack fillers in my life. And I've got lots of cracks still. And there's still some pieces that are missing that I'm trying to put back together, but I couldn't have done it with the help of others. And like I said, my, my savior and heavenly parents, um, my little son, Luke, um, they, my two youngest go to what's called group therapy. Um, and it's through the hospice, um, center that we went to. And then my two oldest go to, to a therapist and I, I myself go to a therapist also, um, which I think is extremely helpful. And I hope that we have, I think we're doing a lot better about not making therapy. So, um, like I had to talk about like, oh my gosh, you're crazy. If you see a therapist, like so helpful, I highly, anybody who's going through a death or a difficult time in their life, I highly recommend therapy. Anyway, my son and daughter brought home these paper mache hearts. So it was basically like a tissue paper all ripped up and then it was glued back on this like heart. So it was all these little pieces glued onto a heart. And I asked my son about it. I'm like, hey, bud, what's this? And he goes, well, mom, our hearts broke into pieces when dad died. And now we're just putting them back together. So I feel like it was such a beautiful way for him to also realize like we're just putting ourselves back together after this loss of we're broken. We're hundred percent broken and we're just kind of trying to figure out how to put those pieces back together. Um, I talked a little bit about uh, Kate Bowler's fellowship of the afflicted that she talked about, like how um, we kind of gravitate to those also who've been through something hard. It doesn't have to be them going through hard right then, but someone who's experienced something difficult um, after Dan died. And even during, you know, ex those experiences we went through, I needed meaningful conversations and connections with people. Um, I needed people to stop acting like everything was perfect 
And I needed people who were, who were ready to just be honest and real with what was going on in their life. I didn't need the Instagram version of life. I needed the real unfiltered version. Um, even texting, it's still hard for me. Like I can't do conversations through texts. Please call me or have a conversation with me if you wanna have one. I'm all for it, but please don't text me stories or have me text you a story. Um, so the, the fellowship of afflicted, it's those marked and shaped by suffering. Oh, I just love that, so beautiful. And she says, we have fought in the trenches for faith and hope and joy. And we've learned that they don't always take sanitized Sunday form. I find that so true in my life. Like I am searching constantly for faith and hope and joy in my life. And it doesn't take a sanitized Sunday form. Um, it, it is hard and it's raw, um, but we're doing it every every day, just a few steps at a time. We're, we're moving forward. Um, I also like to talk about like our afflictions. We kind of have these scars in life from our heart, not, not always physical, but emotional scars. Um, and we're marked and we can identify each other. I've noticed that I can identify somebody who's going through something hard by the look on their face. Cause I've had it, the look in their eyes. Cause I've had it and I can see it by their shoulders slumping by them trying to act like, yeah, I'm great. When I know that voice, cause I've done it over and over again. Um, and we, the scars of our life are visible to each other and we might not know what they were caused from, but we see them. So we, we connect through our wrestle, through our heart. Um, Christ came to earth to physically and spiritually heal people. We, we can't always heal each other physically, but we're here. I truly believe we're here to, to heal each other spiritually, to heal our souls through sharing ourselves and through sharing our heart. Um, sharing my story, sharing after not being able to share for six years, opening up and sharing this has been one of the most difficult things in my life. Um, I started an Instagram page where I share journal entries about the things we went through because I searched for that when I was going through it. And it's really hard. A part of me feels like I'm betraying Dan and doing it. But something he told me when, when he was alive, he said, I remember saying to him, why don't you share what you're going through with the people around you, with your friends and things. And he looked at me and he said, you can tell them when I die. And although I really hated him saying that, I have taken that to heart and I want people to know the man he was and the struggle he has and all he overcame. I was, I, I am now wide open for everyone to see my heart is right up there. I'm like standing on a high tower with everyone seeing my heart. I can't hide it anymore. It's out there. So I had to stop caring about, about keeping it quiet and share it because what good does it do if, if I hide it from others, right? Like what good does it do if I don't share it? How can I help anyone? And for the first time, um, Everyone knew it. And I felt strongly I didn't want this experience to go to waste. I needed to make it meaningful. Uh, there's a, there's a, a rapper called Macklemore. I don't know if any of you know him, but in his song, he talks about dying twice. He says, the first time when they bury you in the grave and the second time's the last time somebody mentions your name. And I, I'm like, I've got to keep Dan's name alive because if I keep him alive, he's still here. I don't want him to ever be lost or ever be forgotten. And that's really important to me. I couldn't go back to the person I was before cancer, before our journey. Um, it would be really easy. 
but I can never go back to that person. I've learned too much and I've experienced too much. Um, I started seeing the people we marginalize, those that are unseen, um, injustices, all those things. And, and I started to gravitate to people and wanting to know their heart and wanting to know their experiences. Um, and in my sharing, I hope that others won't feel alone. I hope that they know that I see them and I know they're hard. And um, I want them to find comfort in my story. And I want to ease their burdens because that's what we're all here to do is help each other. Um, that's about it. Jerry, <coughs> great job. <laughs> I, I speak for listeners that are going to be listening to this that <clears throat> want to thank you for your courage to share your story and I say this a lot but there are things that I've written down that will be completely different from somebody else and what they've written down there are things that maybe you thought were sub points of sub points that will be just what someone needs to hear you do a really good job of communicating you were very prepared um, you got through a lot of content um, in a short time and thank you for that um, thank you for just honoring Dan and, uh, you know, he fell in love with a really strong, bright, capable woman. <laughs> and I love this marriage that he's gone, but I love the way you talk. It just honors Dan and the beauty of your time together. And I have to think the strength of your marriage will translate to your kids, even though Dan's gone. And, um, listeners, I, I love these podcasts because I learn things new all the time. I don't have a lot of experience in this space, but I love, these are some of the words I wrote down, listeners. I wrote down beautifully difficult. You kind of have this way of bringing two words that shouldn't be together, together, <laughs> as you describe this experience. I love you being not a wounded bird. Um, and I like that. Um, I like that ministry examples, be like Dan's hands. And I love the things that people did that were helpful. I love mud of grief. <laughs> um, I love you normalizing therapy for you and your kids. And I think that's a sign of strength. Um, couple, How do people find you? Should we? Is there an Instagram page you mentioned? Should we put that in the show notes? There may be some people yeah. that want to reach out to you. Yeah, sure. And yeah, please feel free. Um, yeah, it's Dan underscore beats underscore cancer. Yeah, I made it before he passed, but still, I think he beat it by the way he lived. So we're gonna we're gonna keep that. So listeners, I'll tag if you're following me on Instagram, I'll tag that page and I'll tag you on Facebook, but I'll also link in the show notes. If you're not on social media, you can see the Instagram page in the show notes. And so you can message Jerry. Um, do you have any regrets about not it, you I love part of this story is a very intentional way that you and Dan walked this road with um, sharing and not sharing and not feeling like, do you have any regrets with that? Um, or do you feel at peace that that was the right thing for our family? That's a good question. Um, the only thing that Dan and I um, disagreed on sometimes was how much to share with our older two kids. Um, I knew that I would have to deal with them later. Interesting. Um, and remind and our listeners how old they are. When Dan um, died, my oldest is 18 and my youngest is 14, but at the time they were 11 and seven. Okay. Um, 
So, you know, still pretty young, but everything I read was saying, share with your kids what's going on because it brings them more comfort and peace. Our, um, one of our kids had really bad anxiety. And so I think Dan was trying to, he was trying to protect them. And I get that as a dad, he felt like he was causing them pain. So he felt like if he didn't share it with them, if we didn't tell them exactly what was going on, he was protecting them. I didn't always agree with that. Um, there came a time when I just kind of had to say, I'm going to, I'm going to share more with them. They have to know more. Um, it was probably a little too little too late. We've, we've kind of been navigating that a little bit and it's been hard. We've had some really hard discussions and there's been some hard emotions and hard feelings on their part towards not being shared more. And I knew that would happen, but I guess at the time I had to choose Dan over them. I don't mean it's a hard way to put it. I guess I had to choose honoring him and his business and knowing that I'd have to deal with this later. Um, and so yes and no, I mean, no in a way, because that's what we needed. That's what he needed. And, and after he died, I had an experience that showed me that people would have not used him as attorney if they knew he had cancer. And so he was right. Like people see you differently when you have cancer and won't go to you. And he was an incredible attorney. Um, his earning power was the highest in that last year of his life. Wow. Um, because, and that just goes to show the amazing work he did and he cared highly about his clients. So, um, yeah, that's probably the only thing I disagreed on is, is letting them know more. Um, so it sounds like church people and it was more your, remind our listeners, I've probably misstated the ages of your kids just it, maybe now I'm, or now, then, or, or then either one, just so people okay. get a context. When Dan was diagnosed, our oldest was 11. And then our middle was seven. And then we had a one-year-old and I was pregnant at the, at the time. I shortly after had our baby. Um, now um, we have an 18-year-old, a 14-year-old, an eight-year-old, and a, and a six-year-old. And you um, have two girls, a boy, and then a girl? Yes. Yeah. Okay. My eight-year-old is my only boy. Mm-hmm. Okay. That was interesting because I, I, uh, um, just the sharing part and realizing that your husband was coming that from a perspective and you were coming from a perspective. I've got to, you know, this is, I've got to work with these kids after you pass away, but I've got to honor your journey now. And, and yeah. just, that's a really interesting thing. I hadn't thought about that and, and the anxiety and protecting kids from anxiety. So it came out of love, but I love that you're talking about it and processing the therapy. And there's probably been a storming stage. One therapist described it as a storming stage when, a major life event, and then it's just kind of storming um, the new reality. Um, I like that you said you can't always choose to be happy. I've heard sometimes a talk in church is it's a choice, and um, and so I like that part of it, that it's hard. Any more thoughts you'd like just to elaborate on when someone says just choose to be happy? And I think it was really hard for Dan to be happy, and I love the way you created empathy and understanding. It's one of the beautiful parts of this love story is you recognize that dark room was what he needed at times. And you just sat there with him um, and in a non-prescriptive way and recognize that's what he needs. And it's not really my path. It's not really what I would do. So anymore, you just want to talk about that? Yeah, sure. Um, and no, I didn't always do it right. <laughs> Uh, it was six years. So I have a long time to try to figure it out. And, um, but, uh, I, my personality is 
I am a very even keel person. Like I'm, I'm just kind of here in the middle all the time. I don't have really high highs or low lows, but I'm a, a typically happy person. Um, and I've never dealt with, um, mental illness. Um, so, uh, I, I can't really, I, I didn't understand Dan's anxiety and our kids anxiety as well as he did. And, and he really connected with that child about it. Um, so I read a lot, like through this whole journey, I was very intentional on the music I listened to, on the books I've read, on the podcasts I listened to. I was so highly focused on making myself better because I knew I had to be somebody better than I was, more than I was. And I knew that my heavenly parents and my savior would do a big part of that, but I knew I had to put in the work too. And so um, I... I I think a lot of people are probably familiar with Jody Moore in her work. And, um, I know she didn't invent the whole thoughts, create your emotions and things, but, um, her sister does some couples counseling. And I, I had a phone call with her once and, um, she talked with me about how sometimes there's going to be things in life that we, that we can't be happy in. Like for instance, the whole thing with Ukraine and Russia, I'm not going to be happy about it. Like, I'm not going to, there's no way I can choose to be happy in this situation or, you know, something bad, my husband dying. Like I'm not going to choose to be happy about him dying. I can find happiness outside of it, but not in the actual thing. So Dan's was hyper-focused on leaving our family on dying. What would it be like? What would it feel? I'm not going to be here to take care of you guys. So when you are, your fear is so consuming of leaving at 43, I mean, he was 30 seven at the time. So at a young age, leaving a young family and a wife to fend for themselves, how do you find joy and happiness in that? I'm not saying he was never happy outside or, or laughed or, or smiled or anything like that. But when he was sitting in those moments of grief of his life that he thought he was going to live, there was no finding happiness for him in that. And I remember, um, one thing in particular, she said, um, I can't remember her name. Sorry, Jody Moore's sister. Um, <laughs> she said to me, I know, uh, Natalie, I think it's Natalie Clay. Okay. She said to me, um, because it was really difficult at the time with him. We had some really, uh, knockout struggles. I'm, and, and you'll read that in, if you read the Instagram page. Um, and I remember her saying, imagine when you leave this life, and you go to the next and you see Dan and he's like standing a little distance off. And the first thing he says to you is, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I was hard on you at times or I was angry or I wasn't happy all the time or whatever it may be. And thank you for being there. Thank you for sticking with it. And I, in turn, would say sorry for things too. But it was just like this beautiful picture of seeing him whole and having this moment. I mean, I may punch him in the shoulder, but I mean, I'll hug him too after. But um, just it brought the whole thing into perspective for me and made me realize he can't be happy in this thing. He can't because he's so worried about us. And when he passed all the family and friends he talked to, he would look at them and say, I love you. Please take care of my family. That was his focus, was taking care of us. And so, you know, I, I don't blame him for not finding happiness in that thing of dying. Yeah, I mean, that's really helpful because his he's dealing with grief of 
of lost dreams mm-hmm. and providing in all the, all of that as well as fighting a really difficult illness. I was really empathetic and very really good at this space. <laughs> lots of work, lots of work. <laughs> Talk about you know, I'm now, as I've listened to more of these podcasts, aware of testimonies where everybody gets their miracle and you didn't get your miracle. And so how do you um, just talk to other people that didn't get their miracle and maybe think, well, God doesn't love me or we just should have been more faithful or we're being punished for past whatevers. And you can go down this long road of why our miracle didn't happen and why that testimony I just heard did happen or that conference talk. And so talk about, that's a tough topic, but I have a hunch you can handle that. (laughs) Thank you. Um, One, I think that in our our culture, I'm going to again say culture, we talk too many times about miracles that do happen Um, because we, we feel like this faith building, like, Oh, this happened. And we had this miracle. And so when you're someone like me who doesn't get the miracle, it can be really hard to sit in church to hear it. Um, I said before I had that strong impression, everything's going to be okay in the temple. And at the time I equated that to Dan beating cancer. Now, Dan, at the time when he was diagnosed, there was no symptoms he had. He looked normal, had zero symptoms. He felt like a little BB in his neck. That was it. And so the actual uh, treatments and things that the can't, the chemo and the radiation and the bronchi, all that. I mean, I slowly watched my husband from this strong man to now, not that he wasn't strong anymore, but physically he, like I said, he lost his ability to speak. He lost the ability to eat, to drink, to walk, to, to, to do almost anything. And so I guess for me, as I see that, and and also going back to my brother and how my parents treated this whole situation of, they never kind of saw this as, well, we must've done something wrong because Andrew didn't make it, he died. Um, So I had that as a base, but then you get to this point where you see the person you love most in life and it's a shell of them and they are miserable. And you're thinking, oh, what are you living for? I mean, I've said that to him before. I'm like, Oh my gosh, what? I don't know if I was in your position, I could fight this hard because all you get to do is look at us and sit there. Like there, this is no life. Um, and not that I didn't not want him there, but I saw his pain and his struggle. So I guess when I didn't get the miracle of, of him being cured or him beating cancer, it, it was kind of to a point where his, he couldn't have sustained his body. If he would have had a cure of cancer at the end of his life, at that last moment, it would have been no life to live even without the cancer. So I guess I never really was angry at God for not granting us that miracle. Are there times when I've been angry? Absolutely. I'm not going to lie and say I haven't been angry at God and and my heavenly parents and Dan. I have. I've had my moments of being like, oh, you left me with this. I have to deal with your business. You should have done this. You should have done that. Or man, God, my kids don't have a dad. I, you know, Dan Luke didn't have his dad to babe. Did his dad baptize him? Holland's not going to have her dad there when she gets married and when she graduates. Like these kids need him. He was the most amazing man. I'm not enough. 
I am not enough for my kids because he was what I wasn't and I was what he wasn't. We complimented each other well. And so I guess I was never angry about not getting that miracle, but that doesn't mean I was never angry at God for my situation at times. Knowing deep down it wasn't his fault because I don't believe that our heavenly parents are puppet masters and deciding who lives and who dies. I don't believe that. I believe that um, there's no cure for being human. And that's not my quote. That's Kate Bowler. She has a book called There's No Cure for Being Human, another amazing read, but there is no cure. We come to life and, and we're here on earth and anything can happen. None of us are too good or immune to difficult things in our life, whether that's death, whether that's emotional trials, whether that's physical trials, financial trials, um, divorce, families, kids leaving the church, none of us are immune to any of it. It can happen to any of us. And that isn't because God doesn't love us and doesn't see us. One of the things I think you've done a really good job is reading and uh, finding community and finding um, just principles that can help you on your journey and not walking this alone and recognizing sometimes those are not found in Sunday School Release Society we just have two hours and we don't have time to talk about these com- more complex issues, but I love the way you've are really well read and have found um, principles to help you navigate this and therapy also, which we don't do at church, I guess, obviously. <laughs> um, so I'm not being critical of church. I'm just recognizing limitations of church to solve all of our challenges and the need to turn to other resources and I think that's part of our doctrine. Wherever we find knowledge, we seek after it. I'm paraphrasing. Todd, this is a tender question. Your kids' lives are different without your dad, without their dad, your husband, Dan. And you've mentioned that. And how do you find peace in that, that, that you mourn? You know, when you see Luke, I think your son's name is Luke, mm-hmm. um, that loves baseball, not having his dad pitching and a wedding or just the life events. And so you've sort of mourned you and Dan, you know, his death. And that's, I'm not saying that's not ongoing, but now you've got this new reality of these kids and their life events. And will their lives be changed in a negative way because of Dan's gone? And I can't be Dan. I can only be my mom. mom. I can't be both. And how do I find peace that even though their lives are different and in some ways, maybe not as good an opportunities or their situations are different how do you find peace with your kids? That's that's been the journey. That's been a really difficult part of it. Um, one is, I I think that one thing when you asked about you know not sharing with our kids, I think one thing is I don't want them to get in the habit of not sharing things, of not being open, and so that was something I struggled with. Um, trying to break with my two older, my two younger are very open and talk about it. My, my youngest Tess, um, she's a miracle baby. Um, let's just say when I found out I was pregnant, I cried because I thought I was done having kids. (laughs) Um, but she is a ray of sunshine. And this is something she said before she said, mom, it's not really fair. Holland got dad for 17 years. Paige got him for 13. Luke got him for seven. And I only got him for four. And I only got cancer dad. That's not fair, mom. And wow. I go, no, kid. I know it's not. And she's cried to me before. And my son too. And I think I've been trying to be really intentional. I was 
the first five months, I was not good about dealing with grief. Um, I was really good at telling widow jokes, which are highly inappropriate. And it was actually kind of entertaining for me to make people feel uncomfortable. I'm sorry for all those I made feel uncomfortable. Um, uh, and, but I hit, a, I hit a moment <laughs> at five months where there was no more hiding it. It was just like, ugh, this grief came out. And I had to make a decision because my therapist kept saying, Jerry, um, you can keep pushing grief away or you can deal with it. But if you push it away, it's just going to take you longer. And I go, well, how long? And she goes, really? I mean, <laughs> a lot longer. So I had to make the conscious decision to feel my grief. And you know what it came on the most? Sacrament meeting. Do you know how embarrassing it is to sit in sacrament meeting and feel this elephant on your chest, the pounding in your heart and be like, I'm going to lose it. So I would have to run out and just like lose it. And I've kind of got to the point where I will sit and lose it a little bit. I'm, it's not as much as before, but I had to be intentional. And I started labeling my grief as a grief day. So if my kids are like, mom, what's wrong? You seem mad or you seem upset or you seem sad. I'd be like, it's a grief day. I'm really missing dad today. And then my kids, my oldest would be like, mom, I need to stay home from church. I'm like, what's up? She goes, it's just, I'm missing dad. It's a grief day or, or whatever that might be. And my second to the oldest is starting to become more aware of those feelings too. And I've had some really tender moments with her. Um, I remember one in particular where she's laying by me in bed and um, she said, mom, I'm starting to forget dad, like his voice. Yeah, I just don't know if he's there. And I'm not sure. When I pray, I don't know if I feel my heavenly parents and my savior. And I just, how do I know that dad's really there? How do I know I'm going to see him again? And just talking through these things and, and saying, you're right, honey, you know, it's not fair. And I, he is there. I promise he's there. I know you felt him. If you really think about it, I know you felt him, but I know it's hard during this grief. So I think trying to navigate the grief with them has been really helpful, but it's taken a long time. And I think that's because of the not being as open. And so I, I've had to deal with that a lot. And, and, and we've had some really hard discussions. Um, and it, it'll continue to be something we deal with. Um, losing your dad, I, there's never going to be replacing. And I, and my two oldest, um, as I've gone on a few dates and that's kind of uncomfortable when you have a daughter going on dates and then her mom too. And I kind of had to try to be honest about that. And I think they're afraid that I'm going to replace Dan. And I'm just like, okay, one dad and I had this discussion. I'm not even saying I want to get remarried. I'm not sure, but I have this need to go out to date sometimes. And so, you know, it's been hard because they're like, well, I will never, and I, and I have to tell them, no one is going to replace your dad. There is no replacing him. If somebody ever comes into our life again, they're not going to be your dad. They're going to be whoever their name is, Fred. I don't know. Um, so it's all of that. It's a lot. It is a whole lot. And I don't have all the answers and I'm still just trying to navigate it and figure it out as I go. And I do a lot of reading and I listen to a lot of podcasts and I, I'm just trying to find my way in the dark at times. That's another really good answer, um, by the way. And I, I wrote down just big capital letters, just increased communication skills. I think your family already always had that. And I don't like to paint like this is a silver lining. Dan died. So now you have better community. I don't, there's no silver lining in Dan dying. <laughs> it's just pure sadness. So I don't want to sort of go, but I do see sometimes just, it sounds like there's just 
And I think this will be one of the legacies of your family, which is a credit to Dan too, is just increased communication. And your kids, as they become parents and you see them parenting their kids, maybe you'll recognize some of the hard work you're doing right now that was sort of forced to happen if you're going to be able to move forward. You reckon, and this doesn't mean it's good Dan died. It would be better if Dan didn't die. So I don't want to go down that road that we sometimes paint this like, oh, it's all for good and I can move on with my life. And But I do think maybe one of the things you'll see is just, you know, this generational change. Not that you've, I think you've always done a good job of it. Just we can all do better on this vulnerable communication as your kids start to date, as they start to be parents. I think that'll be one of the things that sometimes you'll just drive home one night and recognize that really painful time in our life, which will will never completely be over. You'll never move on. You'll recognize some of the the woundedness you've all felt has increased your ability to heal and help others. And so I admire you for sort of um, taking that head on and just talking about it. Um, Talked about if Dan could be on the podcast, um, I've thought about, you know, what he'd say. I don't know. I've had, you could answer this any way you want. What would he's, what was his kind of favorite gospel principle or gospel, you know, sometimes men and women have favorite gospel things they like to share. It was kind of his go-to thing or, or anything you'd just like to share that you think Dan would love to have listeners here right now. I love that. Um, so Dan's favorite quote was brave words, braver deeds. And it's from the movie glory. Um, he really likes that. And so we kind of like use that as like catchphrase. Like, so for instance, almost once a week, Dan loved diet Coke. <laughs> <laughs> so a cold diet Coke was like his week or daily routine. He'd be going to like a circle care, a QT, getting a cold diet Coke Coke. And without fail, most days he'd be getting one. He would see someone he knows. And I would hear from that person, so Dan, he bought me my drink or he bought me whatever, all the things I was had or whatever. He loved that. Like he was so dynamic and, um, one friend put it the best. She said, when you meet Dan, you just felt like you would always be friends, like you had always been friends. And he was really good at listening and remembering and caring about people. Like he cared about connecting with people. It was never just like, he never just like small talked it. Um, he would always have really meaningful conversations and remember and then circle back to whatever it was the next time. Um, he saw people. He was so good. And I I don't know if that was from his job of being an attorney or what, but he could read and see people so well. Um, He was a a good man. And he liked to joke that he was a 1980s dad, kind of meaning a hands-off dad. But I was like, that's the funniest joke because he, every week he'd be like, okay, what do the kids have going on this week? He would, he never missed anything. Until he got his trach, he never missed any of our kids' games or events. He lived for that. He loved being a hands-on dad. He loved taking, he capitalized his time. I remember one time he had chemo that day and he told me he was going to take our son to an ASU football game. I'm like, are you crazy? Like, what? You just had chemo today. Um, He didn't care. He had to capitalize on the time he had to spend those moments that they would remember. Um, and so like, he just was really big into connections and he had a really strong testimony of, of our savior and heavenly parents. And, um, 
I think that there was a time um, during COVID when I was really, really angry when I went to church because I felt like um, I kind of equating mass to um, caring about us. And I know that wasn't fair. And I know that was kind of in my head. And so like, um, I started to feel like, how can I go to church um, with, when I don't feel like Christ is here, when I don't feel like people are caring about each other. And so I remember one Sunday I came home and I was super angry and he looked at me and he goes, Jer, I think you need to take a break from church. I'm like, what? And he goes, you can't keep going if you're going to come home angry. I'm like, how are you not? And he goes, cause I don't go for that. He goes, I go to fill my savior and to take the sacrament and to fill my heavenly parents. Cause I need that. I don't worry about all the rest. And, um, that was Dan. Like that is just how he was. And that was a good example to me. He gave me space, but then he kept doing what, what he felt like he needed to do. And I knew he wouldn't love me any less if I decided not to stop going. Um, I knew it wouldn't change any of that because he knew me and he knew where my heart was. That's a great story. I Googled your husband's obituary this morning, listeners, and I love the, well, we'll link to it in the show notes. Um, and, but I love the picture you chose. I assume you chose this picture. Your kids helped you. I think yeah. he's at a sporting event. A leading he's at an old, issue football game, yeah. And he just is happy. And this is, you know, my favorite picture is I look through your Facebook, um, your joint Facebook account and the picture of you two together with your kids and this picture. And Dan, thanks for the life you've lived. And I don't have all the answers and I don't, you're missed. And I think your wonderful wife has done a great job talking about you and your family. And it's a, I don't know if you can listen to these things in heaven, but I think it's a proud Dan moment to hear you talk about you and him and your love story and the pain and the, and the difficulty and this really difficult chapter and him working to the end and having his best year financially at the end as he wanted to do the best job he could to provide Dan, you're a hero to me. I don't know if you can hear that. You're obviously a hero to Jerry and your kids and many people, but you're not forgotten, Dan. This podcast is a long shelf life, just like Jerry's Instagram page does and memories um, that many people have that love you. And I love your visual of that reunion on the other side that'll happen one day. And mortality is brutal. And I think that's part of mortality, but I don't think anybody's eternal possibilities change because of what happened in mortality, even though mortality changes. Like you mentioned, the Ukraine war, and we've recently had this devastating earthquake in Turkey and Syria. There's time for just one more last segment. Anything else you'd like to share with our listeners, Jerry? Well, I think, um, just hold on. Um, if you're, I think the biggest thing is know that you're going to be given things harder than you can handle. Like, I, I like that. <laughs> throw that out. Like you will. And I promise you that your heavenly parents and savior will make you enough. Like if, and I saw the person I could become in glimpses throughout this experience with Dan. And so like, I, I'm telling you, I know you will be made enough over and over again. You will be made enough. Um, I'm not saying it won't be hard because it is, it's extremely hard, 
a lot of lack of sleep and a lot of loneliness at times, even I'm, I felt lonely at times too, but just hold on. Um, I reach out to me if you need to feel some fellowship in your affliction. I'm here. Um, and just know you're not, you're never, ever alone. You'll, they'll always be there for you and they'll always make you enough over and over again. And they see you. They see you no matter what's going on. They see you. Thank you, Jerry Broadbent. Thank you listeners for joining us a bit. Seriously. Thank you, Jerry. What you did was just terrific and with courage and grace and faith and real, um, which is earth life is real. So Jerry Broadbent, Richard Osler signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Mm -hmm.